Well, I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. As we begin a new series this morning, if you watch the news or you read the paper, I'm sure you've heard something about the refugee crisis. People are being forced to leave places like Syria because of wars and persecution that is taking place there. And let me say, the refugee crisis is a tragedy. And we as the people of God should be concerned about the refugee crisis. And regardless of where you stand politically about what we should do with refugees, you need to understand that the Word of God is crystal clear on how we're to treat people, even the refugees in our land. And so let's understand that. But you need to understand there is a big difference between refugees that we read about, that we hear about today, and exiles that we read about in God's Word. You see, a refugee is someone who flees a country for safety because of war or because of religious or political reasons. But an exile is someone who is banished from their land. They are taken from their country, oftentimes as slaves. And so for the next four weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at what it means to live as exiles in this world. And we're going to learn that from looking at the people of God and and how they lived in exile in the Old Testament. And then we're going to look at a New Testament passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to see how that correlates with how you and I are to live as exiles today. Because I believe that many Christians today, many people who call themselves the, the people of God are confused when it comes to how we are to live as believers, as Christ followers in this world that we live in. Some of us live like this world, and the pleasures of this world are all that we have. This world is our ultimate reward. And when we do that, when we live that way, it causes us to be overly concerned with what's happening in our world, both politically and financially. And it can cause us to hold on with an iron grip to the things of this world, and it can cause us to live in fear with what's happening in this world. And that is wrong. God doesn't want us to live that way. But then there are other people today who say because of the world in which we live, we are to separate ourselves completely from this world. We are to escape from this world and we are to live alone, so to speak, waiting until Jesus comes back. These people see everything in the world as evil and everything in this world is to be avoided. But I believe that both of these views are wrong. And that's why we're going to spend some time looking at God's people who were forced to live in a pagan land, and as we look at them and how they lived in a pagan land, we are going to learn how we are called to live in this land that is not our home. This land in which we are now temporary residents. Because you need to understand two things. One, 
This world that we're living in is not home. It's temporary. And then second, we live in a pagan land. We may, at one point in our past, we may have been able to call America a Christian nation. But we cannot do that anymore. With the things that our nation is doing, with the things that our nation has embraced, there is no way that we can call ourselves a Christian nation. Now, as we begin this series, let's look at a little bit of Bible history so that we can better understand the time in which we're talking about. The nation of Israel had become a powerful nation under King David. And this continued when his son Solomon became king with with his God-given wisdom. Israel became one of the most blessed nations of the world. And yet the Bible tells us that, that Solomon turned his back on God. He married pagan gods and he began to, or pagan wives, and he began to worship their pagan gods. And when Solomon died, the nation of Israel divided into two kingdoms, much like America divided during the Civil War. You had the northern kingdom, or Samaria, and you had the southern kingdom, or Judah. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom both continually disobeyed God to the point that God finally judged them. In 722 B.C., God allowed the Assyrian army to come in and destroy Samaria, the northern kingdom. And the people of the land, the Jews that lived there, were taken captive and forced to live all around the world. We call this the diaspora. And as these Jews were taken from their homeland and and replanted all around the world, the Assyrian king brought people from all over the world to live in Samaria. And as the Jews who remained, the poorest of the poor, began to marry these other people from all around the world, the Samaritan race was born. And hence the the people that the Jews hated, the Jews despised, because they were half-breeds in their minds. In the meantime, the southern kingdom was continuing to disobey God and they were continued to be, to be attacked by, by many of the kingdoms of the world. But, but finally, under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the Babylonian empire has spread throughout the Middle East. And in 607 B.C., the king of Judah, King Jehoiakim, was forced into submission. It was during this time that, that Nebuchadnezzar took many of the, the finest, the brightest, the youngest men into captivity and forced them to, to work for him. People like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, these men were taken during this exile. After about three years of of living this way, submitting to to King Nebuchadnezzar, Jehoiakim rebelled against Babylon. He turned to Egypt for support and help. And so Nebuchadnezzar sent his army, and then Nebuchadnezzar himself came, and he laid siege to Jerusalem. He conquered Jerusalem, and he took the king, Jehoiakim, into exile into Babylon. And he replaced Jehoiakim as king with Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiakim. 
But Jehoiakim only reigned for about three months. And after three months, Nebuchadnezzar came back and he literally flattened much of the land. He took many of the, the, the relics and the, the treasures from both the temple and the palace back to Babylon. He took Jehoiakim and his royal family into captivity and all the other officials and, and wealthy people he took into captivity. He left only the poorest of the poor people there in Jerusalem, in, Ju- in Judah. And he installed Zedekiah as the king of Judah. And Zedekiah reigned for about nine years. But then Zedekiah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar came back to Jerusalem. And he literally leveled the city. He destroyed the temple. He burned down the houses. And now everyone but the very poorest people were taken out of Judah. And they were taken in to exile. As we look at the Bible, we, we read of people like Nehemiah and Ezra and Esther and Daniel who were living in exile in this time. And, and what's amazing is we discover that even though they were in exile, God used them. God planted them in specific places so that, so that they could make a difference. God positioned them not only so that so that they could minister to the people of God, the Jews, but he positioned these people so that they could make an impact on the world. Esther became queen. Daniel was the cupbearer to the king, which was much more than just bringing the cup to the king. Or, or um, excuse me, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. And the cupbearer was like the, the prime minister. And Daniel was an advisor to two kings. And so this is the period that we're talking about. When the nation of Judah was, was taken into captivity as exiles. And they were living in this foreign land. And that takes us to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29. The Bible tells us that Jeremiah was called to be a prophet of God. In in Jeremiah chapter 1, we are told from his mother's womb, he was called to be a prophet. God gave him a task. And Jeremiah proclaimed God's word, and he was faithful to that task. When we get to Jeremiah chapter 29, we discover that, that Jeremiah is writing a letter. And he is writing a letter to the exiles. We discover that Jeremiah is living in Jerusalem. He was one of the people who were left behind under Zedekiah's reign. And he is writing a letter to those who have already been taken into exile. Notice what it says in verse 1. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, the priests, the prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. As you read verses 2 and 3, you discover that that this was written after Jehoiakim had been deported and Zedekiah had been installed as king. And it's important for us to know that God's people were not in exile because of military conquest. They, They were conquered militarily, but that's not why they were in exile. They were not in exile because of a political collapse. The nation did collapse politically, But that's not why they were in exile. They were in exile for one reason, and that was God's judgment. 
spiritually and morally. The people of God had turned their back on God and now they were in exile. From man's perspective, it seems like a a nation just came in and took over another nation. But we discover from God's perspective that God simply used the events of human history to accomplish his purpose. Listen to what it says in Jeremiah 29 verse 4. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So who was it that caused the exile? It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar, it wasn't the Babylonians, it was God who sent his people into exile. If you turn back over to Jeremiah 25, you discover that Jeremiah prophesied that God's judgment was coming through Nebuchadnezzar. And he even told the people that this exile would last for 70 years. Now listen very carefully. Nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing happens apart from it being a part of God's perfect plan. The truth is, God oftentimes uses pagans to bring about his judgment. We sit back in our, in our nation today, and we look at our political process, and, and we look at the two candidates that we have that, that are most likely, one of them will be elected president. And we think about one and, and how they are dishonest. And we think about how they, they support things that, that we as Christians just simply cannot support. And then we look at the other one. And we see that they are equally dishonest. And we see all this vile, vile stuff that is coming out about this person. And we think to ourselves, how could God allow this to happen to our nation? Or maybe, just maybe, God is giving us what we deserve. Maybe, just maybe, God is setting us up for the judgment that is about to come. Listen, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the the son of a prophet. But I want you to know that as I sit back and I look at our political process... The one thing that I do know is I know regardless of what's happening in America, God is on his throne in heaven. And he is orchestrating the events that are taking place. And so even though I don't understand how in the world we have gotten ourselves in the situation that we're in, I know that my God is on his throne. And for good or for bad, for blessing or for judgment, God is on his throne. So don't fret. And yet at the same time, I want to encourage you to be prepared because we do not know what is about to happen in our nation and in our world. And yet though we don't fret and we need to be prepared, we need to be aware. And so I would encourage you to do that. So here were the Jews. They were living in exile in a foreign land under the power of people who worshiped pagan gods and and had vile practices Kind of like America today. And how were they supposed to live? This wasn't their home. This wasn't where they wanted to live. They didn't approve of the practices of the land. 
And so what were they supposed to do? When Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah tells us what to do while we're in exile. And though he doesn't tell us everything, he tells us some very important things. And so from about 14 verses here, in Jeremiah 29, I want to give you some things that I believe God tells us for how we are to live as exiles on planet earth today. Because this isn't our home. And though there are many people that still want to hold up America as this wonderful, great Christian place, I'm here to tell you it's not. And if you think it is, open your eyes. We are exiles. But how are we as Christians supposed to live? Well, some of this is going to surprise you. And so let me give it to you. First of all, Jeremiah tells us to do this. He says, enjoy life. He says, to continue with your life, keep on. Look at verses 5 and 6. He's writing to the exiles, and he says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Now, there were some who were saying, we're not going to be here very long, so, so don't settle down. Don't make yourself at home because we're not going to be in Babylon very long. There were others that were saying, this is a pagan land. Don't get comfortable in this pagan land. And yet, Jeremiah says, both of those are wrong. What you need to do is build houses. You need to settle down. You need to plant gardens. You need to have children. You need to get married. You need to go on with your life. You need to enjoy life. Now, there's some today that say Christians shouldn't buy homes. I've heard people say that. I mean, we shouldn't go into debt buying a home. We should rent because we don't know when the Lord is coming back. I hear other people say that, that you shouldn't save for retirement. Saving for retirement means that you don't trust God. And I've heard, I've heard people say, you shouldn't have children. How can you possibly bring children into such an evil, wicked world? And yet God told his people who were living in exile to continue life. He even said, I want you to enjoy life. Do all the things that you were doing in Jerusalem. Build your houses, plant your gardens, have children, have your sons and daughters marry, keep increasing in number, don't decrease, enjoy life. In other words, what God is telling us today is this. We don't cocoon, we don't retreat, we continue with life. Because we don't know how long we're going to be here. We don't know what's going to happen next. But what we do is trust God during the journey. And so he says, enjoy life. The second thing he tells us is this, work to make the city you live in better. Uh, Look at verse 7. Work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. 
Now understand the city that they were in spread throughout the Babylonian Empire was not the city that they wanted to be in. They would have preferred to be in Jerusalem, but they weren't. And so what were they going to do while they lived in this pagan city? God says, I want you to work for the peace and the prosperity for the city you're in. There are some of us that, that look at, at where America is today. And I believe every Christian should look at where America is today. And, and we should say, I don't want to be here. This is not the America that I want. And it's okay for us to say that. It's okay for us to long for something more. And yet the Word of God, I believe, teaches us that, that more than just longing for home, while we are here in exile, we should be working for the peace and the prosperity of the place we are. Now, in the Hebrew word for that phrase, peace and prosperity, there's one Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word shalom. Now, most of us know that word, and most of us know that word means peace. And it does. It means peace. And we should be working for the peace of the land in which we live. But understand, there are different kinds of peace, isn't there? There's national peace. And we should always be striving for national peace. There's relational peace where we get along with other people. And we should certainly be working for that. And we have so much civil unrest and even it seems like Oftentimes racial unrest in our, our land today. And we should be working for this relational peace. But then there's also internal peace. The peace to, that allows us to go through the situations of life. And, and yet go through without being afraid. Without fear. We have the peace that, that passes understanding. And, and then there's the peace of God. And what you need to understand is this. Shalom primarily in God's word was used to describe internal peace that was the result of a heavenly peace. And so when it says that we are to work for the peace of the city, what that is saying is we should do all that we can while we are in this pagan land to share the peace of God with the people that we are with. The Word of God tells us that we have a peace that passes understanding. The Word of God says that we should be ready to share the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, I challenged our deacons and our yoke fellows to, to be about sharing the peace that they have in Jesus Christ, to share the, the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. And many of our deacons and many of our yoke fellows took me up on that challenge. I challenged them every week to share their story, their faith story, with at least two people. Rashawn Ford, and, and I can't share all of them, but Rashawn Ford shared with me how he shared with Mike who, um, who is an Indian who owns a gas station near his house. He is a Hindu, but he shared with him his fate story, an interesting conversation. He shared with his um, co-worker, James and Tara, who was performing a sleep study on his son. 
Justin Britt shared with me that, that he was sharing with several of his co-workers that one of them was struggling with some things and, and he was sharing with him about some of the struggles that he had and how Jesus gave him peace and Jesus gave him hope. Foster Gerard um, shared with me how he shared his testimony with a client on a golf course. And then the other day, he shared with some others, um, co-workers who were sitting around a table as they did a continuing education class. And I could go on and on and on. Many of these guys said, you've taken me out of my comfort zone. And yet they shared the peace and the hope that they had through Jesus Christ. And that's what we're called to do. In this pagan land, we're called to share peace. We should work for the peace of our land. But understand the word shalom, it means more than just simple peace. It means prosperity. The word literally means the good of the land. You see, it's so easy for us as Christians to be critical of our culture. It's so easy for us to be condemning and even get mad about what's going on in our land, and yet is that God's will for us? Or would God rather us be as exiles who were seeking to bless our culture, to be salt and light during the Renaissance period in Europe, during the 14th to the 17th century? led into the Reformation. It was a fascinating period in history. But what we see during that time is that Christians were very actively involved in culture, in the fields of literature and science and art and and even politics. And because of their involvement in culture, it led to the Reformation. You see, the Christians did not cocoon. The, The Christians did not separate themselves. The Christians sought to be a blessing to their culture. They didn't criticize it. They didn't condemn it. They engaged their culture. And that's what you and I are supposed to do as Christians who live in a pagan land. We don't sit on the sidelines condemning and criticizing because that's not going to change anything. But what we are to do is to get involved. To get involved in in making movies. To get involved in in writing books. To get involved redemptively in the political process. To get involved in education. We're to get involved in these ways. And over time, if God gives us the time, we can redeem culture. You say, I don't believe it. Well, Well, let me give you a preview. If you read the book of Daniel you will discover that Daniel was used by God to touch the heart of two different pagan kings who gave testimony to the fact that the God of heaven and earth was the one true God. And so don't tell me that that we can't make a difference. Don't tell me that we're supposed to sit back on the sidelines. No, God wants us to be engaged. God wants us to be involved. And so we are to work for the peace and the prosperity of our land. Third, we're to pray for our city. We're to pray for our land. The latter part of verse 7 says, And pray to the Lord for it, 
For its welfare will determine your welfare. Wow. Pray to the Lord for the land. Pray to the Lord for this pagan land, Babylon. Because Babylon's welfare will determine your welfare. As Babylon goes, so you go. How does that apply to us today? Well, we can sit back and criticize and condemn and and attack. But the fact of the matter is, as America goes, we go. If America falls, we fall. And so our desire should be to pray for America, not condemn it, not simply criticize it, to pray for it. I, I don't agree with our president. I don't agree with with many of our elected officials, probably most of our elected officials, but I tell you what, I pray for them. And even though I disagree with them, I want you to listen to me. I appreciate them. I really do. Because I understand the sacrifice of civil service. I understand the sacrifice of public Service And I know some people and perhaps many people use it as a stepping stone. I understand that. But I'm going to choose to pray for them. I'm going to choose to lift them up. I'm going to choose to ask God to, to impact our nation with his glory and his honor. Because the prosperity of our land will determine our prosperity. Fourth, as we're in exile, don't be deceived by false prophets. Look at verses 8 and 9. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the the God of Israel says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they're telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. See, there were false prophets who were were telling the people in exile that they wouldn't be in exile for long. that, That deliverance was coming. But Jeremiah said deliverance isn't coming for a long time. You're going to be in exile for 70 years. But what you need to understand is false prophets have always been around. We read about them in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We read about them in church history. Jesus warned us of false prophets. Paul warned us of false prophets. John warned us of false prophets. Peter warned us of false prophets. And we see false prophets today. They come in all shapes and sizes But let me tell you what false prophets have in common. False prophets typically tell us what we want to hear, not what we need to hear. Did you hear me? False prophets tell us what we want to hear, not what we need to hear. And so what kind of false prophets are are moving in our nation today? Well, there's plenty, but let me give you two. The first group, subtly change the gospel. They water the gospel down. They change the gospel. They change it subtly so that we don't even know that it's changed, but they change it enough to condemn the people who receive it to hell. Some change it by telling us that that the, the blood of Jesus and the death of Jesus is not enough to save us. That, that Jesus died for us, but we have to work for our salvation as well. And, and they tell us that we must do this, or we must do this, or we must do this to be saved. And the Bible tells us those are false prophets. But there's another false prophet who has changed the gospel. 
And that is the false prophet who tells us that the gospel doesn't transform. That we can receive the gospel and, and continue our old way of living. And yet the Bible makes it clear that the gospel, when received, makes us new. We're different. We have been born again. And so there are false prophets out there. Some are telling us that you've got to work for your salvation. It's all about what you do. Others tell us that it doesn't matter what you do, that if you've just accepted these facts, you're saved. And yet the gospel is Jesus died for our sin. There's nothing you can add to it. But when you receive it, it transforms you. It makes you new. You're born again because his spirit comes to live in you. But then there's another false prophet on our land today. And some of you may not want to hear this. But, but this false prophet promises earthly prosperity. This false prophet tells us that if you follow Jesus, if you accept Jesus, then you're going to be healthy and wealthy and everything is going to go your way and you're not going to get sick and nobody you love is going to get sick and, and you're not going to get hit by a hurricane. One of my dear friends in Florida posted something yesterday about the hurricane and they talked about how, you know, it was God and the answer to prayers that, that the hurricane didn't hit the Florida coast. And it could have been. But, but I've got to tell you, my thought process was, well, I'm sure people were praying that it didn't hit Haiti. Why did it hit Haiti? You see, some people want to tell us that if we love Jesus and we pray hard enough, then bad things won't come our way. And that's just not true. This past week, I... I got a call from one of our former members, John Owens. He was driving down to, to Florida. He had just been told that his father had brain cancer and lung cancer. His father was acting fine, and then all of a sudden he started acting incoherent. They took him to the hospital and had brain cancer, lung cancer. That was on Tuesday, Wednesday. Today... They've said you can have surgery and have maybe six months. You cannot have surgery and have three weeks. John Owens gave his life to Jesus about 18 months ago. I baptized him right over there. 70 years old, gave his life to Jesus. Don't tell me that bad things don't happen if you love Jesus. This world is filled with all kind of bad things. You love Jesus, you can lose your job. You love Jesus, you can lose your health. You love Jesus, you can hit by, get hit by a hurricane. Understand, when these people tell you that, that prosperity is going to come your way when you love Jesus, run. Because they're false prophets. And then the final truth here is this. Never forget God's promise. Look at verses 10 through 14. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised. And I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. 
I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity, restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you, and I will bring you home again to your own land. Now, understand, this was written while they were in exile. This was written while they were promised that they would be in exile for 70 years. And yet God says, I know the plans I have for you. When we read Jeremiah 29, 11, and we read, I know the plans I have for you. They are plans to prosper you. They are plans for good and not for evil. Understand, those plans would not culminate for another 70 plus years for these people. And so when we sit back and we try to say the promises of God are that God's going to make us healthy and wealthy and wise, it's just not true. But God does have good plans for us, amen? It, it may not be on this side of eternity. You, you may be here this morning and, and for the rest of your life, you may suffer in agonizing pain. I hope not, I pray not, but you may. It's a possibility. You may be here this morning and you work hard and you do your best, but until the day you die, you live paycheck to paycheck. I can't promise that that's going to change. You may do everything you can to treat people with honor and dignity and respect, and yet you get treated hatefully back. That may happen. I can't promise you good things here on this earth, but here's what I know. God says, one day I'm going to take you home. When I take you home, it's going to be good. The plans I have for you are so much better than anything you can imagine on this earth. But I want you to notice what he said. This is important. He said, in those days when you pray, I will listen. Listen to what it says if your Bible is open. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. You see, the problem with many of us today is we want a relationship with God when it's convenient. We want him to step in and intervene in our time of sorrow, in our time of despair. We want him to reach in and rescue us like Superman. And then when we don't need him, we, we forget him. And yet the word of God says, you will find me. When you search for me with all of your heart. And so where are you at today? Are you searching for God with all of your heart? Because I'm here to tell you, that's hard to do, isn't it? It really is. It's hard not to have a divided heart in the world in which we live. And yet we've got to get so desperate for God that we seek after him with all of our heart. And he says, when you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. And it is then that when you pray, I will listen. So are you seeking him with all your heart? If you're here and you've never done that, then I'm here to tell you, I don't care how many prayers you pray. It doesn't matter how many church roles you've been a part of. If you haven't Sought after God with all your heart. 
you don't know him. And so I want to challenge you today to surrender everything to him. Seek him with your whole heart. And then there are others of you today who you've done that. But you've gotten sidetracked. You've gotten your eyes off of the Lord. And I want to challenge you. Seek him wholeheartedly because it's when you do that you'll find him. I want you to bow your head with me. With your head bowed, with your eyes closed. If you're here and you haven't received Jesus, you haven't surrendered all and turned over your entire heart to him, I want to encourage you this morning to pray this prayer to him. Dear God, I come to you with all my heart. Lord, asking you to take control. Forgive me for all my sins. Forgive me for my rebellion, my selfishness, my self-righteousness. Today, trusting you to save me, I'm giving you my life completely. Wherever you lead, I'll go. Whatever you want, I'll do. I want to follow you with all my heart. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing me. Thank you for saving me. Amen.